I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. And we are two Shakespeare nerds who decided to make a podcast about our love for Shakespeare. In this podcast, we will tackle as many dimensions to Shakespeare's plays as we can by looking at the text, examining the historical context in which it was written, and how the text is viewed through modern lenses of feminism, racism, classism, colonialism, nationalism, ableism, all of the isms. We will discuss how his plays shaped both the past and present, and, as actors, how his plays can be responsibly performed today, all while trying our best to approach his works without giving in to bardolatry. So, Shakespeare, anyone? Hi, listeners. It's Courtney here. If you are listening to this episode after 2023, you might be wondering, who is this Corey Lee Smith host? When we started this podcast, I went by that stage name, Corey. I've chosen to leave my stage name, and as you know, I now go by Courtney. But before you enjoy past Elise and past Courtney's episodes in our back catalog, I wanted to clarify the name switch. Now that I've set that straight, I invite you to sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Hello, listeners. This is Courtney. Elise and I are so thrilled to continue bringing episodes of Shakespeare Anyone to listeners like you for free. We do this out of our love for Shakespeare, theater making, scholarship, and decentering dead white men. We put a lot of hard work into research, recording, editing, and generally producing a podcast. With that said, I'm here to remind you all that we have a Patreon page if you want to support our current work and our future goals that we believe Patreon will help us achieve. We've created a variety of support levels and continue to create exclusive bonus content for our patrons on a monthly basis. Our bonus content so far includes Shakespeare Stuff We Loved This Month posts, where we share the Shakespeare-related products we are obsessing over. Not only that, but we already launched bonus episodes. One is an extension on our conversation with Dr. Simone Chess about John Lilly's Galatea and Early Modern Trans Studies. And the second is a conversation with special guest Stephanie from Protest Too Much Podcast, in which we review Joel Cohen's Macbeth starring Denzel Washington and Frances McDormand. Elise and I also discuss Shakespeare-adjacent content, like movies, TV shows, books, to name a few, and share those conversations exclusively to Patreon. These are incredible conversations you can unlock as a patron. We also have plans for additional bonus episodes, including more special guests, more film reviews, and even an Ask Us Anything. Distinguished patrons even receive exclusive voting power and snail mail. If you would like to join us and support the production of this podcast, or just check out the Shakespeare-themed names we've given the support levels, head to patreon.com slash shakespeareanyone. The link will also be in our episode descriptions. And if you like what you hear, Elise and I would greatly appreciate it if you could rate, review, and follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Your review might even make it on an episode. When you're done, be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter, and then tell a friend. Word of mouth is our best form of advertisement. Thank you for listening and all of the support you give us and the podcast. Now, onto the episode. Please note this episode contains graphic descriptions of infanticide, miscarriage, and infant death. 
If you would like to avoid that content, we will give you a warning so you know when to skip ahead in the episode. Hi, Elise. Hi, Corey. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm fine. <laughs> I'm fine. I'm especially fine because we're going to talk about um, a very uh, relevant topic still to this day in mm-hmm. our Macbeth series. Uh, today, we are going to be talking about gender politics and Macbeth. And I do want to clarify a definition of gender politics so that everyone knows what this episode would entail. Uh, The definition that I'm going on is gender politics is the assumptions underlying expectations regarding gender difference in a society. So the ideology of what is masculine and what is feminine. And oh boy, does this play have a lot to say on Mm -hmm. what is masculine and what is feminine. Quite. And the consequences of said masculinity and femininity and stepping out of those realms is tumultuous, is tragic. And uh, we're going to just kind of like go through the play and talk about specific instances of gender politics and the implications of what is happening. Mm-hmm. Let's start with the first scene, the witches. Banquo says, you should be women, and yet your beards forbid me to interpret that you are so. At first glance, we are confronted with beings that challenge gender expectations. Yes. Beards belong to men. Mm-hmm. So they are beings that exist outside of the gender binary and can kind of destabilize the world of the play this very like masculine feminine are divided Mm -hmm. world yep they are the like sexually undifferentiated spontaneous unpredictable supernatural forces they're freed from gender they're freed from sexual stereotypes and they cause our main characters to then step outside of their role this world is collapsing, this paradigm is going to be messed with. Yes. And interestingly, I don't think I've ever seen a production of Macbeth where the witches have actually had beards. Yeah, I've seen a lot more um, let's make them non-human than let's, you know, make them ambiguous gender or let's give them beards. Is there a reason why this would have been a physical feature that Shakespeare wrote into the play? Because... Um, in all my research on witchcraft, I I read of witchcraft as like being mostly a female, you know, 20 to 1 ratio. Women are more likely to be witches. But most of the people accused of witchcraft weren't mentioned as having like, you know, beards or anything like that. In analyzing it from the gender politics lens is that it does place them in this category that is neither explicitly male or explicitly female mm-hmm. and that it creates this ambiguous status for them. So I guess it could be kind of like Shakespeare, rather than taking it from anything that James or anyone else was writing about, which is at the time it could have been like him taking the opposite of dressed as a girl, you know, male actors dressing Mm -hmm. as women and male characters and female characters cross-dressing. Or he might have even been thinking about that. I think it's also to subvert what people would be expecting going to a play in his time. Mm. If a character has a beard, they're a, you know, a man of a certain age. We're not femming them. Mm-hmm. These are not femme women, if they are women. Mm-hmm. And they are not masculine men. They are something in between. Yeah. I mean, they would have been played by males. In Shakespeare's time, it wouldn't have been a female playing a witch with a beard. It would have been a bearded man playing a witch with a beard. Yeah. I think 
probably in Shakespeare's time, it's something to other them and make very clear that they are not of society. If I'm going to guess, like, why use this as a device? Um, I think it instantly makes them other. From a gender politics mm-hmm. standpoint, it's just like, oh, this is very interesting that, like, yeah, the characters that are ambiguous are the ones who drive the action and manipulate the future of the male protagonist. Yeah. And then placing the non-binary as the ones who are driving it and being the inciting incident for all of the tragedy then makes a clear argument at, at the start of the play that whether or not Shakespeare really believed this, he was writing a play in which like your gender is important because then everyone everything can collapse when you go outside of your gender and already setting up characters who are non-binary is a great way to be like gender is going to be important even if it wasn't like subconscious because i don't think shakespeare actually believed all of these i think i think we can't uh, put modern reasons onto shakespeare that's true or modern terms onto shakespeare because we don't know um we weren't there and we don't have you know, written records of things. I think that now it is important to acknowledge in 2020, 2021, if we are going to be producing this play, paying attention to these gender roles, and we're going to, you know, acknowledge things that could be potentially harmful Mm -hmm. or helpful. I think that's where the modern lens has to come in. So if you're a director or producer who is going to produce Macbeth today let's just really gender it with Lady M. You need to not ignore this. You need to at least acknowledge that part of this play as well. Mm -hmm. Because also trans and gender non-binary people are not problematic. No, no, they're not. They're not. (laughs) Just need to say that. It's, I think it is fascinating that in Shakespeare's time, there is this idea of beings outside of the binary. Mm -hmm. That is, I think, something that we can at least acknowledge we can't try and guess out, you know, why did he have a concept of, did he share our concept of queerness is a difficult thing to answer. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Hop off my soapbox. Yeah, no, no, no. Soapboxes are great. I love them. I love soapboxes. But there is like the division of looking at it historically and then looking at applying what we know today or what how we can take it and make mm-hmm. it because I have never seen... Macbeth witches, the weird sisters, um, as anything but incredibly feminine. And I mean, you've said that there's been, you know, alien and that kind of thing, but very like of nature. Yeah. You know, in, in that they look like trees. They look exactly. They've got like teased hair and they like kind of, you know, or uh, that they're pure otherworldly. Mm hmm. And not something simply in between, in between gender. I would like to see a powerful queer production of this that you know, has some witches that are outside the binary. Right. I'd love to. Yeah. I'd love to see that. I would too, because I think that that actually serves better than like making them sexy, hot, weird sisters who put their hands all over Macbeth. And I'm like, what part of this text tells you that they should be like wearing low cut shirts and like feeling up on him? I'm a little confused at that interpretation. I just like internally scream. <laughs> I saw this trailer. This is a tangent. Probably going to get cut, but I saw this trailer for a uh, 26, no, 
I don't remember when it was, but it was this like Australian version of Macbeth and it was very much like, he has a gun and he rides a motorcycle and the witches are like topless. And I was like, that's that doesn't make any sense. Can they just be powerful non-binary beings? Exactly. Living outside of the gender constructs that we know today by the patriarchy, which is a great time to bring up our main man, the protagonist with a lot of internalized misogyny at a certain point. A victim of the patriarchy himself. Yes, a victim and a product of the patriarchy. And that would be Macbeth. Macbeth. <laughs> mm-hmm. So when the story starts out, Scotland is a warrior society. I guess historically at war more often than they're not. I think we talked about this yeah. last time. Mm-hmm. And um, his classification for being a man is being called Brave Macbeth. He is set up to be the ideal masculine. The male society is violent and you are a better man the more violent you are. The first thing we hear about Macbeth is this captain coming in and being like, oh man, let me tell you about how he just like knifed through a bunch of enemies and like mm-hmm. unseamed him from the nave to the from chops the nave to like the it was nothing. <laughs> And everyone's just like, huzzah! Yay, violence! Yay, exactly. For brave Macbeth, well, he deserves that name, disdaining fortune with his brandished steel. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And um, so that's how we start with Macbeth. A warrior, very well-regarded, as strong, male, very masculine. He then is thrust into the witch's prophecies. Would you consider this like the inciting incident of his masculinity being challenged, or would that be more like Lady M? I would consider it being the witches. Um, okay. That took me a minute, but I think that their prophecies, let's face it, if the witches didn't stop him on that heath and deliver their prophecies to him, he would have, you know, gone back to Duncan and been like, oh, great. Like, I'm Thane of Cawdor. Real cool. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and had no expectation of being king. Although I had, I, yeah. I don't mean to interrupt, but I was reading some, um, I don't mean to interrupt, but I will. I, <laughs> I was reading that like some, <laughs> I was reading that like some actors will start the play having Macbeth already having imagined killing Duncan and having ambition towards the crown. Then why would he not even be able to like say out loud the thing that like hearing the witch's prophecies has made him envision? The thing that makes his seated heart knock at his ribs. Like, why, if he's been dreaming of it, whose murder yet is but fantastical? If it's good, why do I yield to that suggestion whose horrid image doth unfix my hair and make my seated heart knock at my ribs against the use of nature? Mm-hmm. Just the suggestion of the thought is wigging him out, literally, because, like, his, his hair standing on end. Yes, he is in absolute shock. Yeah, the ability to think do act is smothered if this was something that he wanted and desired we'd have different language in that moment and i think that takes away from Macbeth's depths which is like he is a brave warrior and he does fulfill that role of masculinity in scotland at the time that depletes his femininity which is the whole the whole conflict between him and lady m mm-hmm. even though he does fulfill this masculine role of Scottish warrior, what he's doing is being manly. Mm-hmm. Anything else is not manly. Yeah. 
he'll say it later, I dare do all that may become a man who dares do more is none. And then to be unseated, Malcolm was held as a political prisoner. Malcolm and Donald Bain were captured and were freed. And they are not as manly as Macbeth. Mm -hmm. It's not like Prince of Cumberland is going to somebody who is equally manly. Like Banquo, it goes to this guy who not only, like, couldn't handle himself on the battlefield, but was unmanly, like, got captured, like, negative man points. And so I think mm-hmm. it adds that insult to injury. It's not just that it's his son. It's that it's this person who is Macbeth, if we're going to go in that internalized misogyny, doesn't see as, as good of a man as he is. Because at that time period, the crown could have gone to anyone. Yeah. Would we have a different play if... Banquo was given Prince of Cumberland. Would Macbeth be like, oh, congratulations, well. my man. Congra- yeah. yeah. Well done, my dude. Yeah, like, exactly. Exactly. Instead, it's, no, I need to, you know, murder the king and implicate his children. They're not manly enough. They're not the ideal man. And what could possibly happen to Scotland if you don't have a manly man on the throne? It could go to hell, which is funny yeah. because the opposite happens with that philosophy is... <laughs> You instead of having like with this full man with the full man who's like, I'm a god, no one can hurt me. And then everyone's like, wow, Scotland really has gone to the dogs. Yep. <laughs> so, OK, uh, Macbeth has received this prophecy and he's now thinking about murdering Duncan and becoming the king of Scotland. And he writes to his wife and then we head over to our girl, Lady Macbeth. Yeah. I think it is important to note that in Shakespeare, in general, female characters have far fewer soliloquies. And when they do, they're often focused on the actions of the male protagonist instead of the actions of the female character herself, which we see a little bit with Lady M reading aloud the news and giving us the uh, gloms that art. But then we actually do get, you know, her deciding to take an action and invoking these spirits that tend on mortal thoughts and asking them to unsex her here. Uh, One of the readings that I did argued that in this monologue, this soliloquy, um, our girl is asking for a certain alternative gender identity that allows her to slip free of the emotional as well as the cultural constraints governing women to be able to do what she needs to do to help her husband. Yeah, no, she does. Like, at her at her core, if she wasn't in this patriarchal society, she would be the one to maybe be more action-based. But because society was never built with women in mind, mm-hmm. our institutions never had, like, okay, well, what if we have women involved? She has to play this game where she is neither female nor male, but then what she ends up doing is playing extra feminine and manipulating her husband by berating his masculinity Mm -hmm. she doesn't place in either masculine or feminine she's kind of like playing both well i think that alternative of being able to play both sides and because later she's going to do something that is very violent Mm -hmm. she is going to murder the guards right that Um, is true in this world this is a masculine act and so she's searching for this somewhere in between where she can yeah berate her husband say that he's not being manly enough or call into question his masculinity, his manliness, 
mm-hmm. and then also do very masculine things herself. Yeah. During this time, there was a huge amount of anxiety about patrilineage. There was no way for men to tell if the child was theirs other than the woman saying, yeah, it's mm-hmm. yours. Believe me. Right? Believe me. And there was a lot of belief about validity of patrilineage, including how the baby was nursed. So when she says, turn my milk to gall, you murdering ministers. So there was this idea that like infants' personalities and temperaments could be affected by those who nurse them. Yes. So there was this kind of like anti-wet nurse thought out there that like mothers, if it is truly the husband's child, right? And they don't have any ill will towards their husband. They're not stepping out on that marriage. They will be happy to nurse their own child. It'll be easy for them. We know now. Latching is... It doesn't matter how much a woman may want to. Sometimes there's medical reasons why um, nursing is difficult for people. So the idea of, like, that she could turn her milk to gall, it would be this act of harming innocence entrusted into her care. There was this incredible fascination in the early modern imagination with infanticide because it makes maternal agency a social and political concern. Women were praised for selfless devotion to their children and condemned for for any harm that came to them. So would that have been even if it was accidental? Oh yeah. If they were older, they're persecuted for witchcraft and if they were younger for infanticide. They are both this Madonna and monster. Like, they're so good. They're so pure. It was also considered a sin. Right. And the way that they would report these crimes from, we're talking about, like, before Elizabeth, Elizabeth the first time. Why we know that there's this cultural anxiety is that, like, the way that they describe the deaths of these children is very graphic. It's meant to evoke emotion and possibly make a jury more likely to convict the mother of infanticide. So, okay. Elise is about to read some graphic descriptions of infanticide, miscarriage, and infant death. If you would like to avoid this content, you could skip ahead to minute 2105. Anne Linstead of Linstead allegedly killed her newborn female child by throwing it into a seething furnace. Um, and that was on May 4th, 1593. Mm-hmm. On the 20th of March, 1593, Elizabeth Brown of Lenham is reported to have ripped open the stomach of her newly born male child with a knife and tore out its entrails. And then um, on November 20th, 1591, Margaret Chandler of Richmond purportedly murdered her newborn son by stuffing the child's mouth with earth and bone from a goose's leg and left it groveling in a ditch where it died on the following day. (sighs) Okay, descriptions over. They are going to get that gut reaction of like, oh, God, how could this person is evil and wicked. And, A total monster, yeah. And then women were also accused of infanticide when a child was stillborn or miscarriages due to conception abnormalities. Mm-hmm. Like this crossed class economic and marital lines. And we can see this most blatantly in the case of Anne Boleyn. Yeah. She had a stillborn premature birth of a male child in January 1536. It reportedly occurred about 15 weeks after about 15 weeks of pregnancy. And because 
miscarriages in the first trimester often occur from conception abnormalities frequently resulting in undefined tissue mass or otherwise severely malformed fetuses. It is likely that Anne gave birth to something that would have been considered monstrous in early modern Europe and a sign of demonic possession, which is why she was tried for witchcraft. And that that's definitely like the mother concept, which the mother was later, so it wouldn't have been when Anne Boleyn was being charged, but it's the same it stems from the same thing with the the transition um around like 1603. Edward Jordan wrote this brief discourse of a disease called the suffocation of the mother. Mm-hmm. And the mother was a natural disease that could mimic signs of demonic vexation. And the satanic force animating both the bewitched and witches alike could relocate in a female's sexual and reproductive functions. And this book, while it um, was the first to reclaim the demonically possessed for medicine and, and witch hunts, it did lead to a lot of blame on women for things that now that we're, you know, in 2020, 2021, we know that's just a sad medical mishap. The book basically argues against King James about witchcraft, but it repurposes or it or it repackages disorderly femininity. Mm. So Anne Boleyn would have been a victim of being called a witch or participating in witchcraft. But before Macbeth came out, there was this new transition into reclassifying disorderly femininity. And that stems from just not being able to do your first job, which is have babies, have healthy babies. Yeah. Yeah. And Lady M is somewhere in between these two worlds of witchcraft and disorderly femininity. There is at this time the the witchcraft factor, but then there's also the growing concept of hysteria. Switching from witchcraft as the dominant way to sublimate women to hysteria, which is like your body makes you do these things that make you unwell and we have to govern you. Mm-hmm. And one of those things was what their reproductive organs were doing when they were either reproducing or when they were milking their children. And this was happening around the time, too, that King James was ruling. So he, like, lived during both, like, the end of witchcraft and the beginning of hysteria as a concept for governing women. And this idea of hysteria, their bodies and their fertility and their reproductive organs were blamed. The ailing nurturer is what they were called. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, Lady Macbeth, what happens prior to the beginning of the play, which is she did have a child, uh, we're assuming with Macbeth, and that child died, and Lady Macbeth is childless, and she has failed in one of her main roles, which is to be a mother. Yeah. Her other one is to be a wife and to be a hostess, but she has failed in the most important one, which is helping Macbeth have a lineage. Yeah, and then she creates this paradox right in her fantasy of i would have been happily nursing but if you had asked me to i would have killed the baby Mm -hmm. as it smiled at me and that creates this paradox where she would readily kill macbeth's child to secure her husband's succession to the throne but in doing that she has to destroy the patrilineage Mm -hmm. like any chance of succession like, his line will not go on. Mm-hmm. He'll get to succeed in the short term, but the long term, the name of Macbeth will not be on the throne because of what she has to do. And it's this paradox of 
what she'd be willing to do for her for husband, her husband, but not for children to come. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Again, like harming the innocence in her for care. a short term gratification of being mm-hmm. king and queen of Scotland. And yeah. so while Lady M is being challenged with whether or not she has maternal capabilities, mm-hmm. Macbeth is then also being especially by her and he brings it up himself like being barren not being able to have children and that's a big damper on his masculinity is Mm -hmm. whether or not he can even like what is it that he says it's yeah fruitless crown and barren scepter yeah Yeah. um this is exactly the next point i was gonna make was that after that conversation where she brings up like i would literally destroy your line to get Mm -hmm. you this he starts having those anxieties of um, surrounding patrilineage. You know, he talks about his barren scepter and she's, meanwhile, like, what's done is done. That's it. That's it. And her indifference kind of becomes another another form of infanticide that it, her maternal agency renders his patrilineal future non-existent because there's no chance for lawful succession for the Macbeth. So, like, the this quote is so good that I have don't have a better way of saying it. Um, Stephanie Chamberlain in Fantasizing Infanticide, Lady Macbeth and the Murdering Mother in Early Modern England, writes, Indeed, the smiling babe she indifferently plucks from her gall-filled breast comes to represent nothing less than Macbeth's aborted patrilineal line. It's not just a real baby. It is a symbolic baby. That, that sums it up perfectly. After that point, we also do see, you know, Macbeth using some of the same methods that Lady Macbeth has used to manipulate him to manipulate violence in others once he is king. Mm -hmm. You know, he hires these murderers and says, oh, yeah, like, I could, I totally could sweep Banquo, could easily murder Banquo myself, but I can't because there's now these other implications. Mm -hmm. We've got friends who would not be so happy with this. But are you man enough to do it? But he also compares them to, like, lesser men, like, your dogs, like, you are the worst of men, like, and they're like, no, no, we're men, we can do this. Yeah, he's like, just because you are classified, you know, as a man, like, any dog could be considered a dog. Yeah. He's basically telling them, like, okay, but are you actually a man? Are you actually men? Yeah, because mm-hmm. it could be, like, the difference between Malcolm who, Malcolm is, you know, male, but he's not a man, but we'll call, but he is a male, Mm-hmm. Would, you know, uh, yeah, he, he uses all of Lady M's tactics. And at that point in the show, at that point in the play, Lady M towed the line between being the dominant and the uh, subordinate role in the marriage. At this point, now Macbeth has no need for her. And you see their marriage, their relationship totally coming apart. Yeah. And so he kind of starts, he starts using the tech, like you said, he's using the tactics that Lady M used on him. And all the while, she is totally disappearing from relevancy. Yeah. As his anxieties grow, he has to go see the witches. Something that's interesting to note is that in the list of ingredients that are used to summon these apparitions, many of which are which are all children, is a um, the finger of a baby that was a victim of infanticide. All the apparitions appear as a child holding a branch or a child holding a crown, or there's the one that is the, like, helmeted head. Yes. 
And then he sees all these crowned children of other men that he is confronted with Duncan and Banquo and Macduff, mm-hmm. who all did the job and satisfied their patrilineal obligations. Mm-hmm. Well, and by this point, too, his godlike complex has taken over part of him, you know, depending on how you play it, like he recognizes that he is up against the odds when it comes to the lineage. But he is so he is so mm-hmm. taken over as like being more than mortal. He now thinks he's God. He doesn't stop and think, oh, yeah, like the witches literally said Banquo is going to have a lineage of kings. I'm not. But he is. Yeah, he, he's mm-hmm. he's tried to circumvent that after not thinking about mm-hmm. it. And then all of a sudden, you know, he doesn't. He just avoids it. At, he doesn't he doesn't once bring it up to Lady Macbeth as far as we Mm-mm. see. It's not a concern until after he's yep. king. And then it's like, oh, I totally forgot about that. Or, oh, we got to fix this. Yeah. Snap. Yeah. Now, that, now this has come true. That means sudden Banquos has got to come true. And that means I don't have a, a line. But I'm also not doing anything that could actually make that happen. No. With my wife. Right. He's he's relying more on the supernatural than the natural. His 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 allegiance mm-hmm. has gone to um has gone yeah. towards towards the witches, towards the devil and I guess if you're like mm-hmm. back to demonology, if you're aligned with the devil then I guess it makes sense that you'll think you can do anything in your power to circumvent fate. Yeah. Then we have Macduff over another and the death of Macduff's wife and children, his patrilineage, is what motivates him into mm-hmm. action. And we have a scene of, like, to contrast the monstrous mother, we do have this very, like, Madonna and child moment with Lady Macduff and the Macduff child. Mm-hmm. These innocents being murdered. Right. And it just drives Macduff into his revenge right lady Macduff is in my reading merely a parallel to lady Macbeth, and their relationship is merely okay so Macbeth and lady Macbeth are what not to do Macduff and lady Macduff are how to have a marriage Mm -hmm. and reading it from the time we're in now Macbeth and lady Macbeth have a open communication relationship so the beginning of their relationship is honestly more ideal to me because they talk about things. You know, he would have been working with her. But in Jacobean times, Macduff was doing the right thing by leaving his wife out, mm-hmm. not telling her about things. She doesn't need to know. Oh, I have to go away to England. I'm not going to tell her why. I'm just going to leave her in the dark. And that's the proper thing to do in this in this um, time period. Keep your wife out of everything. And Lady Macduff does actually question manhood and womanhood in 4-2. She says, but I remember now I am in this earthly world where to do harm is often laudable, to do good sometime accounted dangerous folly. Why then, alas, do I put up that womanly defense to say I have done no harm? To do no harm is folly. Yeah. Yeah. Macbeth has perverted the world such that her defense is seen as being one of an emotional woman rather than of sound logic. And that's and that's what we hear from the like Ross and Lennox and the old gentleman, you know, there's just death everywhere. It's gone from a 
violent society where like it kind of really only affected you if you were in politics to everyone it's gone from like oh it's violent to it's ultra violent and if you're not killing for your own means which is you know when we start the play that's like the masculine thing to do is you know violence it's not like oh no we don't want that and the world has been subverted into this ultra violent world Mm -hmm. I, I was reading something that I found interesting because, I mean, I know that Shakespeare takes liberties. You know, he's also trying to build a society that even though it's supposed to be medieval Scotland, he's writing it for Jacobean society. Um, one inconsistency with how Shakespeare portrayed the female characters is that this purely male warrior class in Scotland is not reflective of Scotland during historical Macbeth's life. Mm-hmm. The Holland Shed Chronicles writes that In these days, also the women of our countries were of no less courage than the men, for all stout maidens and wives, if they were not with child, marched as well in the field as did men, and as soon as the army did set forward, they slew the first living creature that they found, in whose blood they not only bathed their swords, but also tasted thereof within their mouths. So, realistically, the way that Shakespeare has placed these Scottish women is not at all reflective of what would have actually been happening at the time. Like, Lady Macbeth was not with child. She may well have had more agency in this time period. Mm -hmm. Um, Lady Macduff might not have been doing that because she did have young children, but certainly Lady Macbeth wouldn't be this tragic character of the constraints of a repressive patriarchy. Mm -hmm. I mean, that also goes into, like, the Scottish women having way more agency and that was part of the reason for witchcraft accusations yeah so like in contrast um to the actual like scottish women we have this very like english idea of what a woman and a man should be one thing that is interesting to note in like the final moments of this play is that maternal agency is overturned through Macduff being a C-section. It was seen at C-sections were violent Mm. in early modern England. They were a last resort. Basically, the mother had to be dead, die in labor, Mm. um, for a C-section to occur. And then a child was considered not of woman born or even unborn because they weren't from a living woman, but like a a corpse. Gotcha. Because the only way that these could have been performed given early modern surgical methods, lack of anesthesia, and just like how intense the surgery was, they had to already be dead. And it became the actual process was incredibly violent um, compared to C-sections today. I imagine. Basically a blood sacrifice to save the Child. fetus. The, the infant. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's essentially ripping a, a woman apart to open, yeah. Get at the to secure the the patrilineage. So Macduff, in being the child of a C section, facing off against somebody who has no patrilineage and has all this anxiety over it over, you know, this maternal agency, and Macduff subverts that to reestablish the correct patrilineage in scotland at the end of this play Mm -hmm. we have had a woman who's willing to do anything maternal agency 
who has affected the course of a man's life and his patrilineage. And to shut them mm-hmm. down, we have a man who, in his first act of life, did not need a mother to enter this world, essentially. Got it. Yeah. With that kind of understanding of of Macduff not needing a woman, therefore being able to reset everything in Scotland, it places women as kind of more like vessels. You're a vessel for the lineage. And if you live or if you die, mm, mm. we need to have that baby boy. Another way to take it is just like these women took this one man and steered him so far awry that he not only lost his life, but he also lost, you know, his lineage. And the only way to overcome these wicked women is with somebody who never needed one. Yeah. Never needed one in the first place, therefore won't be a problem. What a damper. I don't know if I like this play anymore. (laughs) I know. It's like looking at it, it's like, oh, gosh, okay. And that's the thing, too, is that, like, when you're looking at it from a modern lens and you're trying to figure out how to put it on and make it relevant, it's how does this, how can we learn something from today? Like, not not like bumper sticker Shakespeare, not like placing it on in space, but how do we address the um, sexist things that this play came out of, what these characters came out of, you know? How do we grapple with these themes being in there as women mm-hmm. or non-binary individuals as well as you know men yeah how do you grapple with this idea when it is harmful to people that you coexist in the world yeah yeah well i mean even even mcduff who is the ideal he's the savior like he restores scotland he's complicated because he does have feelings which is unlike the way in which most of these men would have been considered mm-hmm. masculine you know he says um oh, yeah. yeah he says he says to malcolm who says dispute it like a man i shall do so but i must also feel it like a man which is incredible but at the same time in the same scene he also is sexist categorizing women as saints or whores he says we having dames enough there cannot be that vulture in you to devour so many as will to greatness dedicate themselves He also praises Malcolm's mother because she was oftener on her knees than on her feet, died every day she lived, so she was more of a hermitess, not a political jointress. Yes, exactly. So even this male character who embraces femininity in a way that Macbeth, who naturally has that femininity where he's not strictly strong and brave and all that, he grapples with his own fears, he grapples with his feelings. They both have that in them and one embraces them and one gets like pushed out of it and it creates a God complex, but you still mm-hmm. can't ignore the fact that Macduff still is sexist in the way he views women and the way he withholds information from his wife and then she gets murdered. Yeah. So. I'm so glad you brought up that. Yeah. It's like, I know we're missing something. It's like, oh, yes. right. Feel it like yes, a man. Feel it like a man, which is incredible. I was reading like too, looking at Malcolm. Malcolm is this, you know, less manly guy, but even still, he encourages Macduff to handle his his family's murder. Uh, this tune goes manly. You know, he wants him to be like, no, 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 you should just take your sword, go get revenge, do this masculine thing. But at the same time, Malcolm is criticized for not being manly enough or seen by Macbeth as not being manly enough. So 
all of these characters, the males have elements of femininity and masculinity and they can't grapple with their own or their own is okay, but everyone else's is bad. Yeah. So yeah, you're right. Like how does a modern man take these characters and say, okay, so I'm playing Malcolm who is called unmanly, but at the same time he manipulates another character by threatening his manliness. For Macduff, what is feeling it like a man when, you know, Malcolm is describing, don't pull your hat upon your brows, um, give sorrow words, but also let grief convert to anger, blunt not the heart, enrage it. Mm -hmm. It's again, you know, we feel things, but we turn it into anger, rage, murder. Violence, yeah. Violence. Yeah, that's that's the answer. The difference of, you know, let me sit here and pull my hat upon my brows and, like, cry. Which then leads me to a question, which is great, grand, I don't know if we can answer this. Is Shakespeare endorsing or critiquing the gender roles of the super-Christian Jacobean time period? The look on Elise's face is question marks all around. I think ultimately we have to look at the end of the play, right? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the end of the play is that the couple who didn't have children, who were an equal partnership, who both embodied aspects of masculinity and femininity, uh, they don't succeed. No. But the ones who do what society tells them to do mm-hmm. and stick to the order of the time do. Yeah. So I think it's... Leaning more. I have to go with it's reinforcing. Reinforcing, which would make sense. Even if we don't know what Shakespeare is thinking, even if Shakespeare did not agree, even if he was a feminist, he was still writing for King James and the people of that time period. Just a room full of men at the end yeah. going to crown another man. We're post Elizabeth. Yeah. Like we've had it we had a queen on the throne mm-hmm. for years. Mm-hmm. But But James was very adamant that Ordination of women is the way to go because of the Bible. Yep. Yep. What a, what a what a good way to spend some time mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. talking about talking about the unfair practice of custom. Yeah. It's not a practice; it's a custom. The unfair custom of not allowing women agency. Patriarchy. Mm-hmm. Mm. Mm. Boo. Yes, Boo exactly. Patriarchy. And then it's it's very cool to you know see how people grapple with all of it. Because I agree with you. I agree with you. You can't hide it. You can't hide it. But, you know, if you're consciously addressing it or you're consciously choosing, you know, how does a choice to cast against gender, you know, or per- to purposefully cast somebody who is not the gender of the character as written, mm-hmm. how does that change the nature of the play? How does that address some of these issues that this brings up? How does it hide them? How does it bring them out into the open. Mm -hmm. Do you want to share your experience playing Macbeth? Oh, yeah. Um, I played Macbeth as a woman. I've been in plenty of productions of Macbeth where, you know, this, the gender is not even thought of, but it was something that had to be very present in ours because, you know, how do we work with language how do we, you know, call a 
woman a tyrant, you know, and like make it not seem misogynist, not seem purely mm-hmm. based out of a character's dislike of women. Mm-hmm. It, it was like a different way to address the patriarchal structures of this play and also having to address like the patriarchal ideas that surround this play mm-hmm. of like, can a woman be power hungry? Can can they be flawed like Macbeth is? And there were definitely some people who um, didn't enjoy it purely mm. because I was a woman. Ah. And it was like, okay, so you have nothing to say about, you know, did she play the character well? It's literally, oh, I just... I don't think a woman I don't should like be playing... A woman. Yeah. And that's misogynist in itself. And there are certain lines I had to... I talked a lot with my director about unlearning the male concept of Macbeth mm-hmm. and really trying to figure out what does the text tell us? What do, is it maybe something that they never paid attention to because they didn't have to, if that makes no, sense? No, it totally makes sense because you're seeing it through a different l- lens. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with, with taking something and removing it from the traditional way of doing it because art mm-hmm. is all about uncovering new things and yeah yeah so in some ways it freed us to actually get to what is written and yes. what is in the play because we we had to remove a lot of the expectations of this play right and it kind of shows that modern audiences are still comfortable with male violence but they are uncomfortable with female violence um so that's my experience of my gender politics in this particular play, how changing the gender affects it is fascinating to me. <laughs> and that's more of a reason for people who are doing Shakespeare now to mess around with gender and race and you know sexual orientation. And, and do it thoughtfully. And do it thoughtfully. Yeah, not just to do it because you're like, let's be edgy, but because it would actually... It's going to highlight, highlight something. Yeah, it highlights something that otherwise gets buried because it's the norm. Mm -hmm. Or the expectation, not the norm. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, do you have anything else? I think that's that's a good... Let's wrap it up. Um, Wrap this baby up. Thank you so much for joining us, and we hope you'll join us next time. I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. This is Shakespeare Anyone. Thank you so much for listening to Shakespeare Anyone. Works referenced in this episode are available in the episode description. Our theme music is Never Ending Minute by Sounds Like Sander. If you would like to support us, it would help us out if you would hit the subscribe button, like us, leave a comment, write a review, share us on social media, tell a friend about us, all the things. We'd appreciate it. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash ShakespeareAnyone. Patreon patrons get access to exclusive bonus content throughout the year. The link is also in the episode description. For more, you can visit our website, shakespeareanyone.com, follow us on Instagram at shakespeareanyonepod, or Twitter at shakespeareanyone. For Twitter, that's Shakespeare any and the number one. Every other platform is spelled out like the name of the podcast. Now, because you listened all the way to the end of the credits, here's a completely random Shakespeare quote for you. From King Lear, Act 1, Scene 4, spoken by Lear. No more of that, I have noted it well.